and welcome back to The Bunker Daily. I'm Jelena Sofronievich. BMW, Volkswagen, Allianz and Dr. Utker are all household names that dominate the global economy. But how did these German billionaires and businesses get to be so wealthy? Germany is typically celebrated for its culture of remembrance and contrition around the Second World War. But the reality of collaboration, collusion and active championing of Hitler and the Nazi regime by some of its most powerful private businesses remains happily ignored. So how have global powers let them get away with it? To discuss all this, I'm delighted to be joined by David de Jong, who has covered European banking, finance and hidden wealth for the likes of Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal and The Dutch Financial Daily. He is also the author of Nazi Billionaires, The Dark History of Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties. Hello, David. Hi, Jelena. Thanks for having me. So, David, Nazi Billionaires explores these family dynasties, and I want to start by hearing about you. Why did you come to write this book about Nazi Billionaires? I started working on a new team uh, for Bloomberg News in New York in late November 2011, and I was hired as one of the reporters covering North America. And this team specifically investigated family-owned companies in wealth, billionaire fortunes, but I was soon asked to cover, to take the, to add the German speaking uh, countries to my remit because I'm uh, native Dutch. Mm. And I soon started writing about covering, started writing stories which, which merged the historical and the financial. And what I quickly found was that companies like BMW and Porsche were celebrating this business successes of their, you know, exalted saviors like Ferry Porsche, who designed the first sports car, sports car, or Herbert Quant, who saved BMW from bankruptcy, through global philanthropy, but leaving out their war crimes and and Nazi affiliations, and kind of you know brazenly whitewashing their history, not only through global charitable foundations, but also through media prizes and uh, academic chairs and um, uh, corporate headquarters. Mm. And it was really kind of this this brazen whitewashing uh, or this brazen cover-up of history that really led me to write this book. Mm. And most of the businessmen, and I emphasize men that are mentioned in your book, are opportunists rather than convicted anti-Semites. And you argue that they're the kind of people who leverage anti-Semitism for their own financial gain, playing with the rules of the Nazi regime. I want to start with Gunter Quant, who is patriarch of Germany's most iconic industrial empire, now behind BMW. How did he come to the fore? He came from a very wealthy textile family outside of Berlin, in the provinces outside of Berlin. And he used his family money during the Weimar Republic during the 1920s to transform himself into initially a stock speculator and, and staging hostile takeovers of um, battery co- a global battery company and a global uh, arms manufacturer. And by the time Hitler seized power in, in January 1933, Günther Quandt was already one of Germany's wealthiest men and most powerful industrialists. And he ended up, during the Third Reich, by collaborating with the Nazi regime, ended up becoming one of Nazi Germany's largest arms producers, uh, exploiters of 
forced enslaved labor, as well as uh, appropriators of both Jewish-owned businesses, as well as businesses um, in German-occupied territories in Europe. And as I mentioned, there aren't many women in your book, but how did we get from Quant to Goebbels? And it's something you describe as the power couple, perhaps, of the Third Reich. Indeed. So in a bizarre twist of, of history, Günter Quant's first wife, Antonia, dies during the Spanish flu pandemic in October 1918. And in the spring of 1919, he is 37 years old and, and recently widowed with two young sons. He meets a 17-year-old girl during a night train from Berlin to central Germany. And uh, this girl's name was um, Magda Friedländer. And he is enamored with her and asks for her hand after their third date. They get married. The marriage from the start is an absolute disaster, complete mismatch. Günter Kwan is a total workaholic and has zero interest, has interest in having a spouse at home. Magda has ambitions reaching far beyond her being a housewife. And within a decade, the marriage dissolves. They have one son together called Harald. Magda, after the divorce, you know, receives a royal alimony and is completely bored and uh, enters the finer circles of, of, of the higher circles of, of the Nazi party. And is there, attends a, uh, an event where Joseph Goebbels at that point in, um, at that point, the um, propaganda master of, of the Nazi party uh, gives a speech in Berlin. And she subsequently falls in love with him and they get ma- and they are married and, and they, they get married and of course become arguably the most powerful couple behind Adolf Hitler and, and Eva Braun, uh, but certainly the most radical and the most vocal couple in Nazi Germany. And Margaret Goebbels becomes the uh, unofficial first lady of the Third Reich and a, a massive custody battle between Günter Quandt and Josef Goebbels and Magda Goebbels ensues over Harald, who Josef Goebbels exploits as this kind of Nazi propaganda prop, mm. which later after the war leads Günter Quandt to claim handily that he was a victim of persecution by the Goebbels couple, who of course um, notoriously murdered their six children uh, in the Führer bunker and then commit uh, suicide mm. on May first, nineteen forty-five, and and he exploits his his rivalry and his supposed persecution by Joseph and Magda Goebbels to paint himself after the war as a victim of the Nazi regime and as somebody who was por- persecuted to the fullest extent. Of course, nothing could have farther from the truth. Günter mm. Quandt was one of Nazi Germany's largest uh, arms and munitions producers largest exploiters of forced and slave labor and largest appropriators of, of Jewish-owned businesses. Mm. Now, you mentioned Gunter and his son Herbert, who were both members of the Nazi party, and some people were even more active. So Ferdinand Porsche persuaded Hitler to put the Volkswagen, literally the people's car, into production, and his son Ferry was also a voluntary SS officer. Can you tell me how Aryanization informed their business policy, and in particular about the Porsche co-founder and shareholder Adolf Rosenberger? So the Porsche car design firm was founded in late 1930 by Ferdinand Porsche and his son-in-law Anton Pierre and their co-founder Adolf Rosenberger, who was a 
former race car driver and a businessman from nearby Stuttgart. And he was actually Porsche's main financial backer because Porsche spent prolifically on his car designs. And actually, on the day that Adolf Rosenberger resigns as commercial director of Porsche on January 30th, 1933, it's not only the day that Adolf Hitler seizes power in Germany, but it's also when Porsche is facing bankruptcy. The Porsche car, the Porsche car design firm is facing bankruptcy. And... Adolf Rosenberger is unwilling is is unwilling to you know further back you know raise money from his family and friends uh, to further keep the Porsche car design firm afloat. Mm. But he stays as a he stays on as a shareholder of the Porsche company. Now in July 1935, as of course persecution against uh, and the disenfranchisement of Jewish citizens of Nazi Germany is, is steadily ramping up. Adolf Rosenberger is bought out of his shares in the Porsche car design firm by his co-founders, Fernand Porsche and Anton Pierre. But he's bought out on the nominal value of his shares, which at that point in time is far under the market value of his shares, because at that point, of course, the Porsche car design firm has become a very profitable enterprise, because in the meantime, in the preceding two years, Ferdinand Porsche has convinced, uh, well, was tasked with by uh, designs of Volkswagen, is then convinces Hitler to let him produce a prototype, and then yet again convinces Hitler to put that prototype into production. And as a result, of course, the Porsche car design firm is inundated with with requests to design other cars, and has become a high, highly profitable enterprise. So Adolf Rosenberger is bought out far under market value of, the, of, of his shares. And that is a classic example of an Aryanization. And an Aryanization, which was a very euphemistic, a horribly euphemistic expression, was the removal of, of Jewish ownership with regards to any type of asset, whether that was shares or real estate or art or jewelry. And these transactions initially still had the veneer of uh, in, in Nazi Germany of, of a legal business transaction um, in 1935 at least but in the years that ensued it you know it led to outright robbery of uh, Jewish citizens of Nazi Germany mm. and later on of Nazi occupied territories mm. and and you know it was Either it was Jewish citizens of Nazi Germany who were trying to flee and had to pay a flight tax and were desperately selling off their assets uh, far under market value. But far more often, it was the Nazi regime or Nazi bureaucrats or the or the, the business men that I write about in their associates who were pressuring, you know, Jewish businessmen or Jewish business owners to sell their assets you know, far under the market value because else, you know, there would be other uh, dire repercussions. Mm. 
Now, the modern Porsche family is worth around $20 billion, and it regularly donates to charity through the Ferry Porsche Foundation. How have these families managed to maintain their power in post-war Germany? Do you think that they have whitewashed their reputations using philanthropy? Uh, I do think they have. I mean, there is this kind of, well, first of all, they were able to maintain their power or their business power and in post-war Germany because there was never really any legal repercussions for, through most of, for most of German business, mm. bar a few exceptions, which ended up in the Nuremberg Industrialist Trials. But the vast majority of the business of, of, of Germany's business community, as well as the political and judicial elite, went through this very flawed legal process called denazification, which saw millions of Germans and hundreds of thousands of, of suspected Nazi war criminals uh, get off scot-free for their crimes because they were handed over back by the American and, and British occupation authorities in West Germany back to the Germans once the Cold War ensued and through the Allied authorities, the you know Nazi Germany uh, suddenly became ancient history and all they wanted at that point was the you know to have a viable economically viable and democratic west germany as a bulwark against the soviet union and encroaching communism and of course once so the allied authorities especially from 1947 onwards accelerate the handover of suspected nazi war criminals back to german authorities and this, this, this process of denazification ensues, this legal process, which were mainly layman trials. And of course, most Germans or most of the people who served as judges or as, as prosecutors in those trials had no intention of judging their fellow compatriots or indicting their fellow compatriots on crimes, on crimes and, and sympathies that they had also perpetrated or had also held. And what what resulted in a, in, a, in farcical uh, legal uh, proceedings that again saw saw millions get off scot free, and and you know tens of thousands of suspected Nazi war criminals being exonerated uh, of of their crimes or the Nazi sympathies that they held still held. So the myth of denazification that really never took place, and of course the families that I write about were also for the most part, particularly in West Germany, were able to hold on to their assets. They weren't expropriated by the Allied authorities. Mm. Um, everything in East Germany by the Soviet occupation authorities was expropriated. But again, this thinking that they needed to, the Allied thinking that they needed to have an economically viable West Germany also led them to, to have Western Germany or West German businessmen keep their assets. Mm. And I want to stick with that idea about what you've called in your book de-Jewification um, to talk a bit about August von Fink. He fundraised 20 million marks for the Haus der Deutschen Kunst at Hitler's request. How did this man, you call him Bavaria's wealthiest and stingiest man, manage to make himself Germany's largest profiteer of this system of private banking, as you've just said? So August von Fink senior came from a wealthy banking financiers uh, dynasty in Bavaria and his father was the co-founder of Allianz and Munich Re, which today are still 
the world's largest insurers and reinsurers. And he, you know, was one of the few examples that I gave him, that I gave in my book of somebody who was, you know, ideologically involved uh, and ideologically convinced Nazi. And he was tasked by Hitler to fundraise for Hitler's pet project, which was the House of Deutsche Kunst, the House of German Art, because he was also considered Bavaria's not only wealthiest, but also stingiest man. So the Nazi party did not think he would spend any of his own money. So they tasked him to, to fundraise millions or 20 million, it ended up to be, of his fellow tycoons and fellow financiers and industrialists. And as a thank you for his successful fundraising efforts in 1937, when the museum, which still uh, exists and uh, is, is stands in Munich today, was 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 you know thanked by the regime for his services by being allowed to Aryanize the Rothschild uh, the Rothschild private bank in Vienna, which at the time was Austria's largest private bank, and the Dreyfus uh, bank in 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 Berlin. And, and in that way, he became the third Reich's largest profiteers of, of private banking. Mm. Ironizations. Now, anyone who's ever watched The Great British Bake Off or perhaps eaten a frozen pizza will be very familiar with the name Dr. Oetker. And he was one of the few ideological Nazis that you mention in your book pushing party propaganda with his own publication. But he was unique in that this also led to the decline of his business. Why was he different to some of the others? Well, Richard Kazalowski, who was Rudolf August Utker's stepfather and kind of the, and, and the CEO of Dr. Utker at the time, because he married into the Utker family, was much smaller in a way. The Dr. Utker operations at the time were much smaller compared to the other families I write about in the book. Of course, you know, their main item they produced was was which is still produced today were cake mixes and and pudding mixes and and baking goods and Richard Kazowski was a, was a convinced was an ideological Nazi and 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 so was his stepson Rudolf August Utker who became one of most well, Germany's most legendary industrialists but had actually voluntarily joined the Waffen SS and was trained in Dachau concentration camp as, a, as an SS officer. And he was so, and his stepfather, Richard Kazalowski, was so ideologically convinced that he would merge profitable newspaper publications with a Nazi publication that was bleeding money in order to kind of appease the Nazi authorities or give, give them a mouthpiece, a propaganda mouthpiece, in a way. And that is, you know, uh, a completely unheard of example, at least in my book, of somebody who was so ideologically convinced that he would, to the detriment of his own business interests, you know, most of the main characters in my book are sheer opportunists and are un are unscrupulous, but only when it comes, if they can profit something uh, from, from the, you know, exploitation of forced slave labor or of the appropriation of, of, of Jewish owned assets or, or in the occupied or businesses to be stolen or seized in occupied territories, but for somebody to lose money on an asset or an investment to, to benefit the Nazi party is, uh, is truly one of a kind, the families that I write about. 
So in 2010, France's state rail company SNCF apologised for the first time for its role in the Jewish deportations, which was a real change in tone, which some linked to its efforts to tap into the lucrative market for high-speed rail contracts in the US. Do you think that there is as much opportunism sometimes in taking a public stance of apology as there was in collaboration? No, I don't think, because because I think the the companies don't, you know, it takes so many decades and so much effort for, and this is a state company we're talking about, we're not even talking about a private company, so much pain and effort for them to apologize um, because they still fear legal repercussions. So once they get to the point of, of issuing an apology, after so many decades, so belatedly, after so many decades of waiting and wrangling, and duck, ducking and dodging, you know, it is it is because they see no other solution, basically, and uh, and they're finally willing to take you know a modicum of responsibility for their role in in, in deportation or in exploitation or you know you see that on on the on the side of every of of, mo- of many uh, state and private actors across continental Europe. Uh, but, you know, if you look at Germany, if you look at um, there, for instance, the Deutsche Bahn still hasn't apologized for their role and still hasn't even investigated their own past as for deporting their Jewish citizens or and citizens across Europe to concentration camps, to extermination camps, to German mining factories uh, where, where millions were for millions of uh, Europeans, tens of millions of Europeans even were forced to work under most horrific circumstances. Mm. So, you know, if, 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 if the German railway services are, are unwilling to apologize for it still in 2022, you know, um, it goes to show how fearful, you know, private and state companies still are of, 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 of owning up to the past mm. for out of, out of legal repercussions, out of, out of just being have taking responsibility for owning up to the past, you know, it uh, it's 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 quite it's quite dire actually. And Credit Suisse was also recently forced to grapple with this difficult history after it was shown that it had retained money seized from Jews during the Holocaust. Has there been any similar reckoning in German financial institutions, perhaps? There has been Deutsche Bank. And a Dresdner Bank, which no longer exists today, but in the in the 1990s and the early 2000s, published these massive studies and, and very publicly acknowledged their role in financing arianizations and expropriations, but also financing the building of concentration camp and camps and extermination camps. And and have paid into uh, have paid restitution, have paid compensation to for former forced enslaved laborers and to. Jewish business families and other business families that they expropriated and aryanized or helped expropriate and aryanized. The point of my book is, 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 or the argument, the driving argument of my book is, is in, in favor of, is an argument in favor of historical transparency. Mm. And to get back to an earlier question that I did not answer, you know, where you have the Ferry Porsche Foundation maintaining a foundation in the name of a man who voluntarily applied to the SS 
But the Porsche family has never taken a stance, have never said anything publicly, neither about Ferdinand Porsche and his role as director of the Volkswagen factory, where tens of thousands of forced labor, forced and slave laborers were exploited to produce weapons, not even the, the Volkswagen um, car, which never went into production during the Second World War, mm. under the most horrific circumstances. Nor about Ferry Porsche, who designed the first Porsche sports car, and not only voluntarily applied and entered DSS, but even in post-war era, surrounded himself with former high-ranking SS officers at Porsche when he was CEO at Porsche, mm. and put them in very high, high, high directorships at his company, or his is him spewing virulent anti-Semitic vitriol in his, in his autobiography in the late 1970s mm. about Adolf Rosenberger, who had at that point died. Now, August von Fink Jr. went on to become one of Germany's top secret investors for conservative, far-right and ultimately anti-EU forces in the 1990s. How do you think that these dynasties shape German politics today? Well, the, the BMW Quant family is the largest annual donors. So the, so the, the two siblings, Stefan Quandt and Susanne Klotter, who control BMW today, are, are BMW's controlling shareholders today, are the largest annual donors to, this, to the CDU, the Christian Conservative Party, which was uh, which Angela Merkel led for 15 years. And, you know, the Utkers are active in, in, in the CDU, and the CDU really is a symbol of you know, conservative establishment, uh, big business interests. The example of August von Fink Jr., of course, is somebody who is, is the only example I, I provide in my book, this continuation mm. of, of, of from father to son of far-right thinking, mm. uh, at least in funding, because he ended up being a suspected backer of the AfD, the alternative for Germany, which was up until 2021, the largest opposition party in, 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 German, in German national parliament and also the first far-right party to serve in, German national, in Germany's national parliament for more than 60 years. In a recent episode of our sibling podcast, Doomsday Watch, Dr. Alexander Clarkson shared how the Lower Saxony state government is still Volkswagen's second largest shareholder with something like a 20 or 25% stake in the business. Do you think it's in the German government's interest to keep these public and private connections quite under wraps? I mean, it's quite public. Mm. Is it? I, do, I mean, it is public in the sense that they, you know... It's known that, that the state of, of Lower Saxony is the second largest shareholder, third largest shareholder in Volkswagen Group. It's a, a bit of an exception, but but yeah, do, does the general public know? Is aware of that? No, I mean you have to be kind of interested in mm. business and finance to 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 be aware of that fact. You know, as in many countries, of course, there's a big, but in Germany, I would say it's even stronger. There's a big tie-up between between business and politics. But given the controversial heritage of so many of these businesses, do you right. think that the state governments have a responsibility to be more open about those histories and those connections? Yeah, but Volkswagen is actually an example of of a company that reckoned, be, you know, this was before they came under the power of the Porsche Pierre clan, 
they did their reckoning and they did it quite, they did it very successfully and transparently. I mean, if you go to the Volkswagen website today, and that is my entire point, you know, you can read about the atrocities that were committed at the Volkswagen factory complex, but it is what is now are the controlling shareholders of, of um, and particularly the Porsche family, controlling shareholders of, of the Volkswagen group. They have mm. never spoken to the legacy of Ferdinand and Ferry Porsche. And that leads to such perversities of history where you have the Ferry Porsche Foundation funding Germany's first professorship in, in, in corporate history and putting out a statement saying, if you don't know where you come from, you don't know where you're going. With the Porsche family having never spoken about the legacy, as I said earlier, about the brutal Nazi legacy of Ferdinand Porsche and Ferry Porsche. Mm. And you see that across the board, where you have the BMW Foundation Herbert Quant, that's a massive global foundation, which, which has a tagline, inspire responsible leadership, because Herbert Quant saved BMW from bankruptcy in 1959, but doesn't say anywhere that Herbert Quant designed, built, and dismantled a subconcentration camp in Nazi-occupied Poland, or that Herbert Quant had the responsibility over thousands of forced slave laborers in battery factories in Berlin, mm. or that he acquired companies stolen from Jews in France, or that he used his own private estate forced laborers and prisoners of war. You know, one learns from history by showing the good and the bad. And, mm. and particularly in a time, in, 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 in the time we live in today where disinformation is so widespread and so deeply problematic globally, you know, especially the most powerful actors like BMW and Porsche and the families that control them have, I, I would say, an even greater responsibility uh, given the dark legacy that they have, you know, the, the, with their patriarchs, mm. to be transparent about that history. And if that's not what they want to do, they should rename these these foundations and media prizes and, you know, academic chairs and uh, and corporate headquarters that are named after them, these men. And I want to end at looking at the youngest generations of the dynasties you're talking about. Verena Balsen is heiress to a vast biscuit empire, which was effectively by Nazi-era forced labour. In 2019, she insisted that her family had paid the forced labourers exactly the same as the Germans during the war and thus had nothing to feel guilty about. She says, it should continue to belong to me. I want to make money and buy sailing yachts from my dividend and stuff. We should add that Farina Balsen did subsequently apologise for her comments. What do you think about that? And what do you think that these businesses could be doing and should be doing now? You know, I do think that Verena Balsen is a, well, I'm going to look at it positively and think that Verena Balsen is an exception to the rule. I think most business heirs are very mindful of history, or I hope that they are. And, and you know, Verena Balsen's comments were a vile aberration on that front, but it does go to show that as we get farther away from the atrocities of the Third Reich, that this history is more and more receding, which is why it's so incredibly important that these families, if they so, if they must maintain, you know, global charitable charitable foundations and media prizes and academic chairs and corporate headquarters in the name of men that 
yes, brought them immense amount of wealth, but it also committed war crimes. That what we as consumers can ex expect from these families is that at the bare minimum, that they're transparent about the war crimes and Nazi affiliations that these men had. Mm. And I think it is also good for consumers to realize that if you spend money on the products that these families control, that your you know, money could end up as, as these families' dividends and that could go to maintaining, you know, the foundations and, and, and the media prizes and the corporate headquarters um, and the academic chairs in the name of Nazi war criminals. David, thank you ever so much for joining me today. Thank you, Yelena. David's book, Nazi Billionaires, is available in all good bookstores now. And listeners, remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also back us on Patreon. Just see our social media for details. This is Yelena Sofronievich signing out of the Bunker. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Bunker Daily was written and presented by Jelena Sofronievich. The producers, Jacob Archbold and Alex Reese. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison and theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production 